We are looking this summer in our various sermons at doxologies and benedictions, and we find in Jude, the small letter of Jude, the last two verses, both doxology and benediction. So let's hear now the word of the Lord. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. We looked at verse 24 last week and we talked about stumbling and standing. That's literally what this says, that the one is able to keep you from stumbling and to stand you up in the presence of the Lord blameless. And we saw the magnificent work of Christ and the Holy Spirit and God the Father as they keep us and preserve us. And we looked at the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, the preservation of the saints, how that once begun by God's continuing grace, we continue in faith until the day the Lord presents us to the Father blameless. Isn't that a wonderful thought? That's the benediction. Now to him. Now the doxology. It talks about the only God, our Savior. And that's what I want us to take a look at in the moments we have this morning is the simple phrase, the only God. It is literally in the text, the words that you're most familiar with. It's the words monos, one, only, and theos, God. The only mono, God, theos. This is monotheism. We as believers are monotheist. We believe in one God, the true God, the living God. I'll ask you today, like I did last week, to take the red hymnal that's in front of you that you've just been singing out of and turn to page 849. Page 800, you didn't know it had that many pages in it, did you? <laughs> That's a thick book. 849, and when you turn there, you'll see the chapter 1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. The standards of our faith are in the back of the hymnal, the Westminster Confession, the larger catechism, and the shorter catechism. They're all printed there for your edification. Now, I heard a story, and I don't know if it's historical or apocryphal, and it really doesn't matter because it's a good story. <laughs> and I heard it from Paul Settle. Most of you will remember Paul Settle, that great stalwart of our church and of the faith who ministered among us for a good while. He uh, told this in a class that I was attending that he was teaching. And he said, when the Westminster Divines got together in the 1640s, called together by the long parliament to revise the 39 articles of the, the um, Church of England, 
Now, they started their revision project, but they got a little frustrated because they just wanted to say more, and maybe not better, but at least more thorough expression of the faith. And so they began to expand every article. So they ended up with what we know as the Westminster Confession of Faith. And these men of incredible learning, every one of them an ordained bishop or priest in the Anglican Church, and a few men from Scotland who were auditors of the, the uh, uh, conve convention or, or con uh, council, um, put together what we have in summary form of the doctrines of the Christian faith in the Westminster Confession. And chapter one, of course, is on the Holy Scriptures, Wonderful chapter. You need to read it about once every year at least. And chapter 2 of the Westminster Confession is on God and the Holy Trinity. The first two paragraphs are about God. The one God that we serve. The only God. The true God. And the story that, that Paul told us was that these men gathered together started trying to be as concise as they could with respect to the characteristics, the attributes of God, and they were getting kind of frustrated because they all had very systematic minds and one would think of one and another and they were kind of having difficulty sort of putting it into a, a short compass. And they called on one of the men to pray. And I, Paul named who it was, I can't remember, it might have been Rutherford or Gillespie or one of those people, I don't remember, but called on one of the men to pray. And so the man stood up in the midst of the assembly and began to pray. And what he prayed was essentially these two paragraphs. He addressed God, the one true God, using this language. And the recorder and others who heard him pray that prayer said, well, that's a good place to start when it comes time to address, to think about, to concentrate upon to learn about our God. So I'm going to read for you and listen as we go through there. It's, it's very readable. But this is the Westminster Confession on God. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or human frailty, unchangeable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own unchangeable and most righteous will. For his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, patient, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the one who rewards those who diligently seek him, and along with this, most just and terrifying in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means acquit the guilty. God has all life, glory, 
goodness, blessedness in and of himself, and is alone in and of himself, all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only displaying his own glory in, by, to, and upon them. He is the only fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom all are all things, and has most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatever pleases him. In his sight, all things are open and known. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent of the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. Do I hear a motion? We adjourn. Doesn't that say so much? There's a sense in which God is incomprehensible. We cannot know him. His ways are beyond our finding out. But he has chosen to reveal himself. He's chosen to reveal himself in the creation. The number one piece of evidence that there is a God is the creation. That's why when you deny the creation by Lord God Almighty, you really deny the faith. There's no compromise between the notion that God created all things out of nothing by himself in the beginning and created not only order but time as well as all the space and everything that inhabits that space and some other view of origins. The whole book of Psalms over and over and over speaks of creation as the way God makes himself known. And Paul indeed says that by the creation we know God's eternal power, his wisdom, his deity. We know there's Godness out there somewhere. God makes himself known by revelation. He reveals himself. He pulls back the curtain to let us see something of his character. He does this in his names that he assigns to himself and tells to Moses and to others by oracle. He reveals himself in the written word, the holy scriptures that we have. He reveals himself in those acts, those deeds, those works that he performs, not only of creation, but of providence and keeping and care. And all of these things, he makes himself known to us. The divine spirit himself speaks and imparts within our consciousness an, an assertion and an assurance that he is, and that he is a rewarder of all those that seek him. In our doxology that we look at this morning, this one God says, to him be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. Sometimes these words are kind of overlapping and synonymous, but I bothered to pull down an old Webster to get us a little more precise definition of some of these terms that we sort of read over and talk over all the time. But let me 
look at them. Glory, it's the word doxa, and it is praise, honor, distinction, renown, something worthy of worship. It can also mean the height of prosperity and the height of splendor. That's what we attribute to God. He is worthy of praise, honor, distinction, and renown. The word majesty, it means dignity, power, noble, grand, august. And here we see the sovereign power of the Lord as the highest Lord of the realm, the King. It is His majesty. There is none above. The word dominion that's used in our text means supreme authority, sovereignty. It basically derives from the word dominate, to rule and control. This is the all-powerful, the omnipotent God, the creator of the universe. And then finally, authority, exousia. It literally means to come out of the essence it means he has the legal, rightful power. It's not just that God is capricious and arbitrary. It is that he has lawful, ordered, just, and righteous power. He has the right to command because who he is. He is entitled to obedience, entitled to credit, to power. A related idea of the authority of God is that he is the authority because he is the author. He is the author of everything. He created every atom in the universe by his power, according to his wisdom. And the word also means a witness. An authority on something testifying in a court of law is a witness. They bear witness and testify and project upon all objects this supreme rightful power, this, this credit. So when God is praised here in this particular doxology, he's praised according to this status. Now there's just a little note here at the end, which we don't have a lot of time for it, but it covers all of the realm of the notion of time and eternity. Notice the, the phrase, the only God be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Did you get before all time is before the construct of time, before God created chronos, time. Now, the current, the present, and forever. That covers it, doesn't it? Speaks to the eternality of God. No beginning, no ending in God. Always here, eternally existent. And existent within himself. For all eternity there was none but God. And then God created who knows? Who can imagine? Who can fathom? We are creatures of finitude. We are finite. 
We see through a glass darkly. Our eyes are just this far apart. That's just how constricted our perceptions are. We can't see beyond three dimensions. Imagine the infinity of Almighty God. And because of this, we have in, in classic Christianity and in all of monotheism actually assigned and, and pulled out from God's words and from God's works and from His acts and from creation, we have made some observations and some deductions. And but for our sinful mind, we would be able to do better. But the Lord has at least given us these glimpses, these flashpoints of His character. And so we do, as our text we just read out of our confession says, we think about the one God. Israel was called upon in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. We are monotheist. And as such, we are thinking only of this one true and living, eternal all-powerful God. And if you'll be patient with me, I'll sketch for you about a dozen of the more prominent things that we call attributes. We attribute these things in a perfect and an infinite way to God. His aseity. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but who knows what that word means. His aseity. That is his self-existence. Not only his self-existence, that he exists in and of himself from all eternity. He was not created nor caused. He is self-existent. Because of this, he has a self-sufficiency. He needs nothing else. God did not need the creation in any essential sense. He is self-sufficient. And he is absolutely independent. He is not derived or dependent upon anything else that you could possibly imagine. We think of his, as mentioned earlier, his eternality. That is that he not only exists, the, but he is the eternal I am, the to be verb. That's the name that he gave to Moses. I am that I am. That means he's always in the present, in the now. There's an eternal, always existing attribute of God. His omnipresence, His ubiquity. He is near at hand and far away. He is everywhere. He is close at hand in His imminence. He is Emmanuel, God with us. God imminent, God near, God closest as your fingertips, God closest as your lips to call upon Him. God ever-present, and yet He is God far away, God transcendent, God beyond, God to the furthest reaches of the imagination. And He is everywhere in His fullness. He's not spread out like there's some of Him here, and then some here, and some another place. Everywhere He is, He is there in His fullness, in His perfections, in His beauty, in His attributes. Everywhere, present the same. God is, as we've mentioned, one. He is mono. He has a unity. 
and it's a unity of number, there is but one God. Even in the mystery of the Trinity, do we deny that there are three gods because they are of one essence, the three persons, of one single essence, not any deviation or variance. One God. He is one in his number, but he's also one in his essence. He is, the theologians say, it's simple. Simple. That's not an insult. That's not a put down of God. It's saying that God is simple in that he is not complex and compound. A part here and a part there and another part all put together. And we bring this all together and we say all of this conglomeration of stuff is God. That's a Hindu concept, but that's not the concept of the Hebrews. He is God in his simple essence, pure spirit, pure spirit, indivisible. If he is not compound, neither is he able to be separated, bifurcated, or otherwise moved into a complexity and an aggregation of parts. He is a unique being. There is none like our God. He is indivisible, omniscient, all-knowing. He knows all. His knowledge is infinite. It's not constricted to time. There's nothing that God can learn. There's nothing that God will forget. There's no new insights and no surprises to God. God Almighty holds in his essence an all-knowing character of all times. There are no limitations in what God knows. And he knows the most profound truths. He also knows the most intricate details. All wise. Out of wisdom, God created the world. He created man. It is God's wisdom that gives us the order and the structure and the functionality that we know. Science is supposed to come to us and tell us remarkable things that God has done in the created order. Today, science in the hands of scoffers and unbelievers comes to us with all kinds of deviations and perversions and incomplete thoughts and misperceived inferences and tell us that this is the answer and the conclusion is there is no God. Those men that believe in the hard sciences that have stared into the heavens say, well, there may not be a God, but there's something an awful lot like one out there. This stuff had to come from some place. And there we see God in his wisdom. Related to that is God in his truth, his faithfulness. Here we think of God as immutable, not changing. He does not change his being who he is. He does not change his purpose of what he's doing. Thank God for that. In fact, that's our, that's our hope. God's purposes are not changeable. God does not. He says, I am the Lord. I change not. And he is immutable and unchangeable in his promises. He swears by himself. When God takes an oath, according to the book of Hebrews, he swears by his own character. What is higher to whom and before whom God could swear and make an oath and a promise that he would keep. Well, we must hurry on, but we know of God in his goodness. 
His goodness over all the earth. His common grace. Grace means his giving. God is constantly putting out a giving. He is, he is constantly giving and creating and bestowing and blessing. He does it in creation with common grace. He does it in redemption with saving grace. God in his love is unsurpassed. His mercy, his compassion, his patience, his long-suffering, his forbearance. These are things that we know about God because of saving grace. We've seen every one of these activated, demonstrated. God commendeth his love toward us. He demonstrates it in that Christ died for us. God's justice. God is the right, R-I-G-H-T. He is the right. He is the standard, the canon by which all else is measured. God cannot be anything but right and just straight and true, pure and perfect in all of his person and in all of his dealings and all of his ways. And we see God in his justice then, also in his holiness. Some have called this a supreme attribute of God. I have a hard time ranking them. To me, they just stack on top of each other. You know, his justice is holy. His mercy is holy. His holiness pervades it all. The holiness has the idea of purity, not one scintilla of corruption or mistake or filth or twist or warp or stain or blot on God. Absolute purity in every way is God holy. He's also holy in his transcendence, as we spoke of a moment ago. His other than this. He is not like we are in the sense of being creaturely. He is the creator and wholly other than we are. Moving from the holiness of God, the justice of God, we see the wrath of God. God's holy displeasure with all sin, displeasure with all rebellion and all perversion and all uncleanness and all debauchery and all injustice, God's holy eye detects it and his holy nature detests it. This is our God. It's interesting to me that when you read the book of Revelation and you read the great story of the wrath of God poured out upon a rebellious world and you read the great apocalyptic passages of an end time judgment and the wrath of God, it's interesting, it's called the wrath of the Lamb. Think of the irony. Think of the beauty. Because that's what you have. And that's what we have in Christ, the second person of the triune God. We have one who is all this in the flesh. God the one true God with all of these attributes, none of them lacking, in the flesh, condescended, humbled, moving. He's the only one Christ is that's the mediator between God and man. He is fully God, so he carries all of these attributes and all of this majesty and power and authority and capacity. And yet, 
is created a little lower than the angels in humanity. He has participated in our condition. He's been made like unto his brothers, the Bible says, like unto his fellow humans in his humanity. And that's why it says in our text, to the only God, our Savior. Salvation is of the Lord. One of the best summary statements that I've ever heard has been around a long time. I remember first reading about it about 30 or more years ago in Knowing God in J.I. Packer and then the death of death of John Owen by Packer. And he used the phrase, God saves sinners. <laughs> That's pretty simple, isn't it? You want five points of Calvinism? I'll take them. I love them. But here's one point that we can all hold to. God, God and not man, saves sinners. He saves sinners. He doesn't make it just possible they can be saved if they'll work enough, hard enough for it and give a little grace and he'll help along and God and you'll work out. No, no, no. God saves sinners. He did not come to call the righteous to repentance. He came to call sinners to repentance. And if you know yourself to be a sinner, if your conscience has told you you are not perfect and you are not right with God, then you're a candidate for that salvation this morning. God saves sinners. And that's why when we turn to worship the one true God, we do it completely and wholly, adequately and thoroughly through His Son, Jesus Christ. Notice the way the text reads. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forevermore. Let me just mention to you this. Before all time, it's kind of out of your hands, isn't it? God's at work. But you couldn't do much about what God did before all time. I'll tell you a few things he did. He placed you in his love. He planned to send his son to be the redeemer. He has purposed and counseled immutable plans for your good and forever that's where we are headed by his grace he's going to bring us into an eternal state a forever condition in his presence with him here's something you can deal with all time now now is the time of salvation now is the time to come before this God and through His Son, trust, believe, commit, swear allegiance, confess sins, receive forgiveness of your sins. Hear the righteous, just judge say, no condemnation, acquitted, not guilty. And seize upon the opportunity that he gives you by his spirit to know him. Not just out of a textbook, but to know him. Jesus said, talking to the Father, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he hath sent. Amen.